And for those of you who were in Sunday school for more than the last year, that is based on that first question we had in the New City Catechism. What is our only hope in life and death? And you might want to go back and review that, but that uh, brought back a lot of memories. Thank you. Uh, as we pray this morning, uh, I got a text from Tom Yeary and uh, his mother-in-law, Becky's mom, is they had to call the hospice nurses in the middle of the night last night and she's just not doing well and they don't expect her to live more than 24 to 48 hours. So it's happening much sooner than they uh, expected. And so I assured them that their church family would be praying for them today. And so Tom and Becky, I'm pretty sure you're watching and we're going to do that. And we're going to pray for you um, even now. And so let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes. Take a moment to lift Tom and Becky and anyone else you want to lift up before the Lord. And uh, then I'll lead us in a word of prayer in just a moment. If you need to uh, go get with somebody to pray for them, feel free to do that. And if you want to come to the altar, you're certainly welcome to come to the altar. Uh, whatever it is that you need to do and whatever it is that would enhance this time together or would allow you to minister to somebody else, feel, feel free. Feel free to do that, okay? Now, our Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And we come, Lord, first of all, because we need to come. We're never at a time where we don't need to pray. We're never at a time when prayer doesn't really matter. And we never have a time when we really don't have needs to be brought before you. We face sin every day. We face failure every day. We face our own weakness and our humanity and the strength of our flesh every day. And uh, we also are commanded in your word to give thanks every day. We're commanded in your word to rejoice in the Lord always. And so, uh, Lord, we fall short so often of your glory and what you command us to do, even in the simplest things, and we come repenting and asking you to forgive us. And we pray that you would cleanse us of all of our bad attitudes, of all of our feelings of entitlement, our thoughts that life and times and things ought to be better when the truth is we deserve for them to be much, much and eternally worse. And it's only by your grace we ever have anything good in our life at all on this earth. And it's certainly only by your grace that we have hope in life and death, and that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we come before you as sinners and we come before you as your disobedient children. We come before you as those who wander and stray so easily even in our hearts we do it lord and we thank you for your kindness goodness your patience and your love for your children thank you that our sins are paid for by the death of jesus christ on the cross and in that lord we rest and that's where we indeed do find our hope and it's at times like these that tom and becky are going through that we're reminded that there's something more 
to the time we have here on earth than just simply living, existing, and then dying. Uh, Lord, there's an eternity. And I thank you, Lord, that uh, Miss Shirley knows Christ as her Savior and Lord. And I thank you that Tom and Becky know Jesus as Savior and Lord. And so whenever the time comes for goodbye and separation on earth, we want to give you praise today that it's only a temporary thing. And that things next time they meet are going to be much, 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 much better. More than we could ever fathom because she's going to be healed and everything's going to be set in order and our bodies are going to be glorified and there'll never be another goodbye once we are with the Lord. Thank you for that hope. But in the meantime, give uh, Becky especially, Lord, give her strength and give her comfort. And then, Lord, for Miss Shirley... I don't know what she is thinking about right now, but I do know one thing. The Holy Spirit is still with her. And Spirit of God, would you stir up her mind? And would you cause her to think about heaven? Would you cause her to think about her Savior? Would you cause her to think about the promises in the Word of God? And I pray that you would be merciful to her. And I pray that you would give her peace. And then, Lord, I pray for all of us today. There are things we need to experience today. There are things we need to learn today. There are things we need to apply today. Don't let us miss them, Lord. We don't know when our last day is going to be. And may we in these dark times make every moment count for Christ. And we pray all of this because we believe it pleases you. We believe it's in line with your will and we believe that you are even now answering it, even before we say our amen. And so we just conclude by saying we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Would you take your Bibles this morning? And would you turn with me to the book of Exodus? And let's go to chapter 36. We're living in uh, difficult times. Have any of you noticed inflation? There's a little boy the other day that uh, he said, Dad, you must be getting stronger. And the dad said, really? Why do you say that? And he said, I remember when you couldn't carry $100 worth of groceries. <laughs> Inflation. Isn't it good we have a God who's bigger than the government? A God who's bigger than our needs. And uh, we saw this morning in Sunday school in the feeding of the 5,000 what God can do with inflation. And uh, he can do that with you. He said, my income is so meager. Well, if God breaks it and blesses it, as long as your heart is his and dedicated to him, he's promised to supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. And uh, if he's done that, then be like the little boy and take the opportunity to put what you have in the hands of Jesus and to help somebody else. People are going to need it. And that uh, feeds right into what I want to talk about this morning in our verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of Exodus. And uh, that is to talk about being generous. Here's how the dictionary defines it. Showing a readiness to give more of something as money or time than is strictly necessary or expected. Did you get that? Than is strictly necessary or expected. And you see, a lot of people, when it comes to God, they're going to figure it up. And they're on the model of, I'm going to give my 10%. They join the 10% club, and they're never graduating from that. Because they believe, and maybe I'm speaking to you, that 10% is God's, 
and 90% is yours, and nothing can be further from the truth. In fact, in the New Testament, you will find no command on a percentage of giving to tithe. What you find is, give as the Lord has prospered you. And that takes a generous heart because the Lord loves what kind of a giver? A cheerful giver. And I find that a lot of people, they've got their calculator out with their paycheck and they're not cheerful about it. They're agonizing. Am I doing this off of the net or the gross? Oh, I don't want to give God too much. I don't want to be too committed about this because that might cut in onto my 90%. And what that means is you miss all of the blessings of giving. You miss all of the blessings that would come your way in all of that. And when we read this story, we're going to see one of the times when the children of Israel, well, they actually got it right. Now, so many times they mess up, don't they? They're like us. But this time, they actually got it right. And they're taking up an offering for the tabernacle. And you'll notice here that there is no percentages mentioned. There's not, it just says this, if you have a willing heart, if your heart is stirred within you, and that really is the bottom line. You see, if the heart is right, generosity is not a problem. And generosity is, uh, as we saw with our dictionary uh, definition, it's not just giving or doing what is expected. It is the readiness to go above and beyond that and also that we are willing and ready to give more if and when it's required. I don't find very many church offerings that are anything like that. I don't find very many Christians who are anything like that, and yet they're trying to claim all of the blessings that are found to givers in the Bible, but you can't do it if your heart's not right. You can't do it if you're doing it grudgingly or of necessity, for the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And the idea is God's people ought to be generous because we serve a generous God. And so as we uh, consider these things and as we look at the scripture this morning, as we read it, I want you to think about some things while we read through this scripture. Now notice that this was a joyful time. It wasn't somber. It wasn't depressing. It wasn't, oh no, there goes my boat. Oh no, there goes my vacation. It wasn't anything like that at all. This is a joyful, joyful time of generosity. And notice it wasn't forced upon them. It wasn't something that Moses said, you better do it or else. Nothing like that. Willing hearts, willing spirits, it says. And uh, that it was in response to the forgiveness of God. Remember, it hadn't been that long ago. They thought they were toast because of the golden calf. But God has graciously forgiven and graciously renewed that and said, okay, I will stay with you and take you to the promised land and I want to put my center of worship right here in the camp to show you that I'm going to be with you. And what, could they, what else could they do? But give to all of that and give of a willing heart and a free spirit. And so um, it would notice that this is all from the heart and that all of it has to do with what God had commanded for worship. 
The people had to get their hearts lined up with God. What's important to God is important to me. And uh, what's important to me is important to God because we are fellowshipping together around this one thing. God is to be praised and glorified and honored even among sinners like us. Well, New Testament Christians can say amen to that as well. And so as we read this, keep those things in mind and see what you uh, spot, see what you can see in that. Exodus 36, and uh, we'll cover eight verses, one through eight. Then wrought Bezalel and Aholiab, and every wise-hearted man, notice all these references to heart, wise-hearted man, in whom the Lord put wisdom and understanding to know how to work all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary according to all that the Lord had commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every wise-hearted man, it wasn't just those two, it was all of them, in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, even everyone whose heart stirred him up to come uh, unto the work to do it. From the heart, from the heart, from the heart, stirred up, right? Look at verse 3. And they received of Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of the sanctuary to make it with all. And they brought yet unto him free offerings Every morning. Nobody was even telling them to do it. Just freely giving. Verse 4. And all the wise men that wrought all the work of the sanctuary came every man from his work which they made. All the craftsmen, all the people with skill stirred up working together. Verse 5. And they spake unto Moses saying, I always thought they were Baptists, but maybe not. The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded to make. We got enough. Tell them to quit. Isn't that amazing? Verse 6. And Moses gave commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman Make any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. Stop it. Okay. So the people of the Lord were restrained from bringing. For the stuff they had was sufficient for all the work to make it and too much. And every, we are again, wise-hearted man among them that wrought the work of the tabernacle, made ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet with cherubim of cunning work made he them. I think probably most pastors would be afraid if we had a standard of giving like that, we'd never get the work done. And yet here you find just the opposite. God blessing the heart of the people and giving the craftsmen the skill they need. And notice, with 
cherubims of cunning work. What does that mean? Skillful, creative. They were putting everything they had into it, into the work, and that they make all of this stuff. What a beautiful thing it must have been. How impressive it must have been. Now remember, as we studied this before, on the outside it just looked like a tent. And the tabernacle itself had a covering over it, a tent over a tent to shield it from the weather. This thing had to last a long time. But when you went inside, if you were to go inside, only the priests could, of course. But if you were to go inside, you would have lost your breath at the beauty and the magnificence and the skill of all that the tabernacle was on the inside. And people gave to this, and none of them, nothing is recorded in here, well, this means this is going to be a better place than what I live in, and yet I've heard church members say that before. My house isn't this nice. I didn't get new carpet. All of that kind of stuff goes through people's minds. When you look at this situation, you find that the people were involved in all of this, and apparently most all of them were, if not all of them. And uh, they gave what they had and they gave what they could. All of this stuff came from when they left Egypt and the Egyptians loaded them down. And when I read about what the tabernacle took to make it just the tabernacle, my goodness, they must have really been loaded down with all of this. This is a lot of stuff. But even having the stuff is no good if you can't do anything with it. I wouldn't know what to do with gold. I wouldn't know what to do with thread. I wouldn't know how to make and weave things together for even these curtains. And uh, if, if I were to draw a cherubim, an angel, I'm pretty sure the Holy Spirit would not call it cunning artistry. Caveman, maybe. Maybe, if, if even that good. And yet, these people were doing this out in the desert, out there still by Sinai, still by Sinai, after their crushing and terrible sin and the weight of all of that has come upon them. And yet, when God says, build the tabernacle and bring an offering, this is how they respond to it. And I don't know, something about that blesses me because I too am a man who has blown it. I'm a man who needs forgiveness. I'm a man who does not deserve the grace and the power and the presence of the Lord. I do not deserve salvation. I deserve hell and I deserve hell for eternity. And with everything that I know, I would deserve the hottest part of hell in all of this. And yet, how can I come to church and not be overwhelmed at the presence of God and at the forgiveness of God and at the grace of God. And yet that's where exactly you find the children of Israel at this point. This is one time they got it right. And with joy, enthusiasm, and exuberance, they gave the best and they gave it to the point where Moses had to restrain them from giving. Ken Copeland will never do that. Benny Hinn will never do that. Jesse Duplantis will never do that. Why? It's their livelihood. And you'll notice that this was all centered upon God and the worship and the building of the worship, the portable worship center that would go with them everywhere they go. 
and that nothing was too good, and there was nothing that was too much for the service of the Lord. They were so grateful. And so when I think about our definition of generosity and this description of the generous giving of the people, I'd like to make these points. Number one, generosity, or lack of it, I guess we could say, really reveals your heart. It reveals your heart. Now, I know, I know that there are some people out in the lost world that we look and we say, oh, they were really generous in what they gave. But just keep in mind, they weren't doing it for the Lord And secondly, they wanted recognition and benefit from it. You look at some of these people that ask for money and they're, oh, they're so generous. Yeah, and they got a private plane out of it too. Or they got free advertisement out of it if they're in a business. Or they got, uh, you know, uh, they were virtue signaling, we call it now. Uh, Those type of things. These people here in Israel weren't getting anything out of it but the glory of God. And I want to ask you a question. Would that be enough for you? That tells me a lot about your heart. Should tell you a lot about your heart as well. When you look and you start seeing people give, like when we do the blessing bucket, why do you give? It's a free offering. We don't have to. We used to say all the time, and we haven't done this in a long time, so I'll go ahead and say it. Whenever we do the blessing bucket offering... Here's the deal. If you've got it, give it. If you don't, don't sweat it. Remember that? Why? Because we're not asking for anything you don't have. But there are some people, there's some people that they really don't want to give and they resent having to give, especially when there's no notice, but they're too embarrassed not to. And they wonder why God doesn't bless them because their heart is not really in it. And our heart ought to be really generous and willing to give. And it's not just about at certain times or certain situations. This is supposed to be a lifestyle for the child of God. Generous with our time. Do people bug you when they ask for things? When they need help? We're supposed to be generous with our time. We're supposed to be generous with the gift that God has given us. What is your spiritual gift? What is your motivational gift? Do you get tired if you have the gift of encouragement? Do you get tired of encouraging other people? Well, that's not a generous heart. That says something about you. And on and on we could go with all of this. We are to be involved in helping the poor. We are to be involved in helping one another. And uh, all of this is a revelation of what has gone in our, in our hearts. God, you have given so much to me. You gave yourself to me. How could you ever ask too much of me? Now, being honest, there are some times when I felt impressed to do some things that made me swallow really hard. Amen? Sometimes it's like, whoa, man, I don't know. And then, if I'm obedient, it comes to the point of saying, but I will trust you. And you go ahead and sign the check and do whatever. And God always comes through and God blesses. Now, you can be the kind of person, and I think this is where a lot of of people fall down with the prosperity gospel. The devil came to Jesus in his temptation and said, turn the stones to bread. No, I don't live by what you say. I live by the word of God. And God didn't say do that. 
Well, then go to the temple and jump off because if you're so stuck on the Bible, here's a verse for you. It is written, you will not dash your foot against a stone. And the idea there is promote yourself and do something that forces God's hand to acknowledge you as Messiah and, 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 and then all this takes care of. Well, that wasn't the plan and that wasn't the mission. And there are a lot of people that when you look at the way that they give and why they give and what they give to, they're trying to kind of force God's hand. Okay, you said in your word this and this and this, and so I'm going to write this check even though I don't have the money, and I'm going to give it because you're going to give me back 30-fold, and they've got it on the calculator exactly how much it's going to be. That is not the heart of New Testament giving at all. Those are promises. Those are benefits that the Lord gives to us, but they're not the things that we demand from Him. These people are giving without expecting anything in return except the glory of God to be in their camp and in their life. And so I want to ask you, is the glory of God enough? Is the glory of God enough? We're not asking you to give to the church so that we can put on a better show. We ask you to give because God commands it and the glory of God ought to be enough. And we want God to be glorified in our lives, in our families, and in our churches. And one of the ways we glorify Him is giving. And another way to glorify God, of course, is by how we spend it just as they did here. The people gave and they spent it of course, on the tabernacle. So it really does reveal your heart. Did you notice all those things in there about a heart of wisdom and uh, all of those kind of things? A willing heart. It, it's just amazing. They were wise-hearted. They had wisdom and understanding. And their heart was stirred. What stirs your heart is another good question. Sometimes we get stirred and... Um, you know, season football ticket prices keep going up and up and up, and yet the stands are still full. That stirs their heart. And uh, they are motivated in that type of thing to give. They may gripe about it, but they give, and they're excited to go to the games, and they're not going to give up those seats. But what if God's people kind of had some of that same thing in their lives? This is about something that is bigger than me, and this is something that glorifies and honors my Lord. That's why Solomon said in Proverbs 4.23, Keep or guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech, and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward, and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder or think about the path of your feet, then all of your ways will be sure. You want to be sure-footed? Set your eyes on the author and finisher of your faith. Look unto Jesus and live your life to His glory and quit getting involved in all of the other things. This is a blessing and an honor. Now, secondly, I want you to notice that it shows a spirit of unity. You, you look in here and it wasn't just the leaders. It wasn't just the you know, Behazalel and Aholiab and Moses and those kind of guys, all of them whose heart was stirred, all of them who had a heart of wisdom, they were giving. Now, some were giving of their skill and their talent. 
They were working. They were craftsmen. They were putting this time in. Well, how am I going to take care of my family? And how am I going to take care of this other stuff that I've got? That, that part didn't matter. We'll leave that to the Lord. This is the call. This is the command. And they put everything they had into it. And they did it. And they did it well. Because if it bears his name, it's worthy of our best. And it doesn't matter what it is. If it bears his name, it's worthy of our best. And so whatever we do in the body of Christ, whatever we do in our home, whatever we do in our family, whatever we do on the job, we are always giving our best because we carry his name everywhere we go. And so when they built the tabernacle, it only made sense that they would do their very best in it because it bore his name. So they were all involved in that. And then notice the giving. There were some people that, I mean, they were probably like me. They couldn't draw an angel if, they, if their life depended on it. And so they supported the ones who could. William Carey, the man who launched the modern missionary movement, he said, not everybody can go down into the well. Somebody has to hold the rope. And what he was saying there is the rope holder is just as important as the guy who goes down the well for whatever reason. And that's the way he said it is with missions. Not everybody can go, but you can hold the rope by giving to missions. And the same thing is true in the church. We can't all teach, but we can support the teachers. We can't all do the work that's on the platform here, but we can support those who do. And uh, all of this comes out of a heart of generosity that uh, we have. And it shows that we are part of the team. It shows that we are unified in all of this because it's a cause bigger than us. It's not just about supporting me and making sure my family can pay the bills. Thank you for that, by the way. But it's much more about making sure that the gospel can go forth. It's much more about making sure that the truth of the word of God goes forth is something bigger than us. And when you think about it, it says that they brought him free will offerings, and they did it every morning. It was a repetitive, consistent thing. It became a part of their lifestyle. And understand this, we're made for relationships, and I don't think anybody lost or saved doubts that. There's a lot of confusion, but maybe not about that. We're made for relationships, and we're made for community. And we all, I think it's a human thing, we want to belong to something. Everybody joins a group. Some people join churches, some people join gangs. It's just part of the thing. We want to be a part of a group. I hope yours is a whole lot deeper than that. But uh, that's why a lot of people are in church this morning in places. Because it's their gang. It's where they are. It's their tribe. It's what they are a part of. That's human nature. And we all want to matter. We want our lives to be significant. Psychologists say everybody wants to be significant and secure. Those two things motivate us. Well, we all want to matter and we want our lives to be significant. And we want to live for something bigger than us. And that is one of the things that is kind of encouraging about some of the young people that are coming up. Whether you're talking about teenagers, college students, young adults... Uh, it seems to be kind of a universal thing that you hear them say, I want to be a part of something bigger than me. I don't know about you, but I find that encouraging. I hope they act on it. And we want to be a part of something that will outlast us. That's why we put markers on graves. That's why we build statues 
of our heroes. That's why we make wills and we pass on things down. That's why we treasure things that have been given to us by previous generation. This was my grandfather's watch. This was uh, my great-grandmother's china. This was aunt so-and-so's recipe or something. We, we treasure those kind of things. And because we do, we want to leave some things behind. We want to leave something important behind because we want our lives to count and matter. We want to be remembered and we want to be involved in something bigger. There's more to life than just living or dying or living for ourselves. How do you do that? One of the ways you do it is by giving. These people were investing in a tabernacle that would far outlast them. They didn't just have it for 40 years. This tabernacle went on all the way and it was, the use, it was used for worship all the way until Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem. You're talking about hundreds of years. And so what they did, they did well, they did right, and they built it for the glory of God. But at the same time, I think you would agree with me, it was kind of a monument to themselves. Everybody that went to that tabernacle to offer uh, that sacrifice on that bronze altar out in the courtyard with the priest, they could look over and see the tabernacle. And can you imagine how often something was said like that? Son, you see that tent over there? Yes, Father, what is it? That's the place where we meet with God. That's where the priests go to meet with God. That's where atonement is made for our sins every year. Oh, okay. You want to know something else, son? What is it? Your great, 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 great grandfather built that outer covering. Really? It outlasted them. It was bigger than them. And that's why we give to the work of the Lord. We give to a kingdom that will never crumble. We give to a kingdom that will never fall. We give to a king who will never be impeached. We give to a cause and we give to this living organism called the church that will far outlast us and we have the ability today to invest in things and to invest in people that will still be going on when the Lord returns even if that's not a thousand until a thousand years from now we are talking about being involved in the biggest business in the universe it's not the oil business it's not the gas business it's not any of those type of things it's not government it's not political power it is the kingdom of God and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and we've got to get that in our heart and we've got to pass that on to a new generation Russ Demeter and I were talking the other night. When you go back a generation or two, you find people there who thought that the church was the most important part of their life. And his 105-year-old grandmother didn't want to miss church for anything. You don't find that in this generation. And I think it's because in subsequent generations, we have given people the idea that church is eh, it's just another thing. Just another thing. We get up on Sunday morning and uh, could go eat breakfast. I could go see relatives. I could work in the yard. I could go, uh, you know, see something and look at some scenery. Or I could go to church. And in our generation, all five of those things, among others, they're all equal. They're all equal. None of those seem to rise above the other one. Just, you know, whatever. Whatever you feel like doing. Whatever presents itself. Sunday's just another day. 
even though the Bible calls it the Lord's Day, but eh, you know, and uh, we don't really see it like that. And then we wonder why this upcoming generation is the least churched generation in our history and why more of them say that when uh, religion is brought up that they are a N-O-N-E, none, more than ever before in our nation's history. And that part of it's not looking so good. Not looking good for us, our culture, our society, our churches, or anything else. It's a real problem. That's something we need to pray about and something we need to be involved in and something that we need to invest in because the Lord promised He would build His church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And I'm going to take the Lord at His word. He builds the church, not me. He builds the church, not you. And if the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it, that means when He returns, there is going to be a body of Christ here on earth, no matter how hard the government, no matter how hard society, no matter how hard Disney, no matter how hard the devil tried to stomp anything out, you cannot kill the church of the living God. Jesus reigns and the church survives and thrives in spite of all of that. Well, that's why it's our privilege to be involved in it. We invest our time in it. We invest our money in it. We invest our talents in it. We do all of those things because it is going to outlast us and we are painting a picture and sending a message and telling a story to the next generation. What will be your story to the next generation? Ah, do what's convenient. Don't put yourself out. Don't ever be tired. Don't ever do without. Ah, don't give up anything for the cause of Christ. Or will it be the opposite of that? Challenging them to live their lives like you did, sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens when we do that? We, like these people, we find joy. We find joy in the giving, joy in being together for a cause. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says, He has made everything beautiful in its time, and also He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Eternity in our hearts. Eternity in our hearts. Something bigger than us. Understanding us. See, the evolutionist has to work really, really hard to squelch that. The secularist has to work really, really hard to squelch that. The atheist has to work hard to squelch that. How do I know that? Because every culture on the face of the earth throughout history has had some type of religion. Why? Because God has caused us to be born with eternity in our hearts. And that's what we need to live by. Knowing the Lord of eternity, knowing His salvation, knowing His grace... We need to live like that with our eye on eternity instead of just earth. 1 Samuel 18, 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Isn't that amazing? Why? Because that's what we long for. We long for friendships like that. We long to be united in things like that. Well, these people were united. And what were they united around? The glory of God. And they participated together in the giving and in the working on the tabernacle. That's what we're looking for. That's what the world can't provide. 
And in the early church, Acts 2, 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul. Isn't it interesting? We don't do those first things, and yet we expect the awe to come. Got to get it in order, folks. Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, there's that unity, and had all things in common, another expression of unity, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread and in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. There's that heart theme again. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, we want that last part, but we don't want to do the first part. And maybe because we're not doing the first part, we don't see the second part like we should. The Lord adding to the church daily. And thirdly, not only does it show our unity, but it shows God's sufficiency. Where did they get all of this stuff? God provided it. How did he provide it? Through the Egyptians. You say, is it right to take what lost people give us and use it for the work of the Lord. Your paycheck does that every week. You're working for lost people most likely. And lost people pay you and then you come and you give it to the Lord. And you live for the Lord in your homes and providing for your family and all of those kind of things. Well, that's what God did. He gave them the Egyptian stuff and instead of the devil using it, God used it. And it was used for the glory of God. And so it shows here the sufficiency of God. What if they had gotten out in the desert and they had left Egypt with just the clothes on their back and they get out there and God says, now build me a magnificent tabernacle. They couldn't. They wouldn't have the resources. You see, God commands us to give what he has put into our lives and we give that back to him. What if God said, I want a tabernacle and it's better be like this and all the furnishing like this. Now somebody get busy and build it and everybody goes, I don't know how to build that. Do you know how to build it? I don't know how to build that. I don't know what we're going to do. I guess we can try. But God put the spirit of wisdom in Bezalel and Aholiab so that they could do it. Now they weren't the only ones to do it. They were leading. They were captains of the group. And so they got other people involved. Doubtless taught other people. Doubtless refined skills of other people as they did it. But notice that God never demanded anything out of them that he did not first put in them because we are dependent upon God, not our human resources, not our own abilities. And so God finishes what he starts. He doesn't command it and then abandon the project. He finishes what he starts. And he provides all that is required. In John 3, 6, it says, That which is born of flesh, well, it's flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And the Spirit births a lot of things in the hearts of God's people. God calls you to a ministry, and then it never comes through. Well, then he didn't call you. But if God calls you to a ministry, and then he is, you are able to perform that ministry, and you have the resources for it, you can be assured 
that God was in it. First Corinthians, uh, pardon me, Second Corinthians nine, seven, and eight. Each one must give as he has purposed or decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, not out of fear. If I don't do this, God will burn my house down. Don't give like that. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. In other words, God will not abandon you. In fact, back in Genesis chapter 2, God finished his work on the heavens and the earth, and then he rested. What is the point there? He finished. He didn't start it and then leave it. He finished it. And I just want to assure you that if God calls you to something, and God calls our church to something, he, number one, will provide everything we need, and number two, he won't abandon until the work is finished. And that leads us then to the last point. And that is, we see the gospel in all of this. What is the gospel? Well, Jesus came to earth and he lived a perfect life as the God-man. Perfect, perfect life. His heart never strayed. His thoughts never strayed. His mind never strayed. Perfect, perfect God-man. And that qualified him, of course, then to be the sacrifice for our sins. So when he was nailed on the cross, God the Father poured the wrath that he had for the sins of all who would believe on one person. The sins of millions, maybe even billions, on one person. And punished Jesus in our place. Can you imagine? See, the nails didn't make him shriek. The flogging didn't make him shriek. But when he felt the weight of sin, he shrieked. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what was happening at the moment when he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of Christ. And that made him cry out. That's amazing. The spiritual suffering was much worse than the nails. Hell was coming upon Christ's soul. The hell that you and I deserved came upon him. As if it wasn't bad enough, then hell enters his soul. And he cries out with that loud voice. Isn't that amazing? But after that was done, and not a moment longer, not a second shorter, when it is done, he says three words that are the gospel. It is finished. Why? Because God completes what he starts. God completes what he starts and there's gospel in that. God didn't just look down on mankind and go, oh I wish they could be saved. I wish there was something I could do. Jesus was the lamb, John says in Revelation, slain from before the foundation of the world. Do you realize that Jesus is not plan B, he was plan A? Do you realize God already had made provision for the fall of humanity and the redemption of their sins? And he went to the nth degree. He gave his, not his money, not his time. He gave his life, his life for you. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how generous our God is? Because in all of this, whenever we give, 
we see the gospel. Somebody has a need. It's in the church family, the church body. We know them. And we give to help them. And so a bill is paid and pressure is taken off. Every time that happens, there's a gospel message in all of that. There's somebody who paid your debt in full. We, not be, we may not be able to pay your debt in full. We can help and we can be generous and we can show love. But we may not be able to do it in full. But it is a constant reminder of the one who gave his all for us in order that our sin debt might be paid in full. Whenever they came to the people and they said, It's enough. You've given enough. And you've given more than enough. It reminds us of the one who has given not only enough for us, but he's given an abundance far more than we deserve as he has given us grace and he has given us mercy. And he has given us strength for every trial. And he has given us the Holy Spirit of God to live with us every moment of our earthly toil. So there's not a problem you're going to come up against that God's not going to have to go, oh, didn't count on that. Not a one. Sufficiency. It's finished. The debt is paid. Tetelestai is the Greek word. And that reminds us of that every single time we give the sufficiency of Christ. When they put the last nail in the frame of the tabernacle, when they laid the last piece of fabric, when they put in place the last piece of furniture, and it was time for the priest to come in, it screamed out to them, those of us who were helpless and hopeless in Egypt have been delivered. We've been set free. We have a relationship with the God of the ages. And he commands things. But he gives us everything we need to carry out the command. And they couldn't get it. But the New Testament screams, Christ has paid it all for you. Now live, work, and walk in His power and in His peace. And when the mountain is there, you'll either climb it or you'll command it to move and it'll be moved and cast into the sea. But either way, you're getting to the other side. When you come up against an enemy, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. When you have a need in your life, you've got the Father who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Whenever it is that you need somebody to minister to your soul, you've got the greatest psychologist in the universe, the one who made your soul, who is able to say, come to me when you're weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he is the one that soothes all of our anxieties and takes away our fear of death. And we get all of this and heaven too, because our God is generous far beyond what we can imagine. And don't ever look at God as a taker because he is not a taker. God is a giver. Amen and amen. And we have received from him all of this and even more. Father, would you help us today to realize that you do not ask us to give because you want to rob us. You don't ask us to give because you want to gain more for yourself you have need of nothing you call and command us to give because you want us to be like you a generous god may we be reflections of your generosity everywhere we go and in everything we do and all for the glory of god in jesus name
Amen. Pastor, a couple of announcements.